Hello, I'm Terrence McNally. Welcome to Free Forum, a world that just might work. And I'm going to be speaking today with Mother Jones, D.C. Bureau Chief, uh, David Korn, about his new book, American Psychosis, a historical investigation of how the Republican Party went crazy and about minority rule, the media, the midterms, all infected or affected by that psychosis. On Freeform, we explore the lives, the work, and the ideas of individuals that I suspect have pieces of the puzzle of a world that just might work. We look at politics, economics, environment, science, health, culture, all based on the fact that I believe we can do better, and I want to find out how. The show airs on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles and on kpfk.org Thursdays at 3 p.m. Pacific and streams weekly on the Progressive Voices Network on TuneIn.com. Podcasts are available anytime, anywhere on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, most major podcast sites, and at my site, TerrenceMcNally.net, T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y, all one word, TerrenceMcNally.net. There are not that many democracies with only two major parties, and I suspect among them, the U.S. is fairly rare in that one of those two parties actually opposes public service and the government and wants it to fail. I've seen some of that, at least since Reagan, put into overdrive by Gingrich and Karl Rove, and the Republican Party of Trump and the insurrection is a result. American Psychosis, David Korn's new book, shows us a continuous, long, deep-rooted Republican practice of boosting and weaponizing the rage and derangement of the right, nurturing and exploiting fear and loathing, fueled by paranoia, grievance, and tribalism. And the book lays it out through McCarthyism, the John Birch Society, Nixon's Southern Strategy, the New Right, the Religious Right, lately the Alt-Right, Rush Limbaugh, the Militia Movement, Fox News, Sarah Palin, the Tea Party, and finally to Trump and Trumpism and whatever happened yesterday and will happen tomorrow. Relentlessly forward to minority rule, a Supreme Court that puts religious morality over law, and the very real threat to democracy up and down the ballot in the upcoming midterms. We'll talk about the history, and we'll talk about the current state of the nation and the stakes of these elections. David Korn is the Washington Bureau Chief of Mother Jones Magazine and an analyst for MSNBC. He's co-author with Michael Isakoff of two books, Russian Roulette, The Inside Story of Putin's War on America and the Election of Donald Trump, and Hubris, The Inside Story of Spin, Scandal, and the Selling of the Iraq War. And he's the author also of The Lies of George W. Bush, Showdown, The Inside Story of How Obama Fought Back Against the Tea Party, and his latest, American Psychosis, a historical investigation of how the Republican Party went crazy. Welcome, David Korn, to Free Forum, a world that just might work. Good to be with you, Terrence. Thanks Thank for you, having me. David. It's been a few years. We've done it several times in the past, but not in a while. And let me tell listeners, we're recording this conversation Monday, October 17th. I like listeners to get a feel for the people behind the work and the ideas that we talk about. So... In addition to your work at Mother Jones and your books on politics, you're also author of the biography, Blonde Ghost, Ted Shackley and the CIA's Crusades, and a novel, Deep Background. Can you tell us a bit about them? I'm um, sure. Uh, Blonde Ghost was my first book, came out in 
1994. Uh, it was basically looking at the life of one pretty infamous CIA officer, a fellow named Ted Shackley, who had served in a lot of the hotspots of the Cold War and had been involved in a lot of the major failures of the CIA um, in Berlin and Cuba and Laos, Vietnam and um, Latin America, and became involved peripherally in the Iran-Contra scandal um, in the mid-late 80s. And so looking at him was a way to get a window onto the secret world of the CIA and tell the larger story through the perspective of one of its chief denizens. And Deep Background was a novel that came out several years after that that was um, fun for me to write. Good, um, good, good. You know, was, I mean, the LA Times picked it as one of the best novels of that, of that year. And it starts off with a presidential uh, assassination, but it's not so much a who done it as a why done it. And with the president dispatched, there is a competition between the vice president and the widowed first lady to basically succeed him as the next nomination, ne next nominee of their political party. But there's a lot of stuff, a lot of backstory. <laughs> personal backstory, but also some skullduggery uh, that gets in the way here. And at the very end, uh, our hero, who is a White House aide who worked for the murdered president, has to make a very, very tough decision. Mm, very good. Uh, any, any, any more in your, in your, uh, uh, you know, your box there under the desk on things you mean to get to at some point? I mean, projects to do? Novels or plays uh, or films yeah. or screenplays. Yeah. It's wonderful yeah. when I find people who, you know, they, they're people, we know them for this, but they also do that, you know? Yeah, I, I've, d I've done some work in Hollywood writing um, stuff that has yet to be produced, like many writers for Hollywood. So I have a few projects that are knocking along in that fashion. And I have a bunch of ideas for novels that I may get to someday. It's, it's just that, it turns out that nonfiction is stranger than fiction these days. And yes. It's getting drawn into um, more journalistic projects. Which Very is good. Primarily what I am, a journalist. Yeah. yeah. So let me ask any response to my introduction, which borrows a great deal from what you and, and your publishers have said about American Psychosis. No, I mean, the, the, the book is in some ways a history of the dark side of the Republican Party that has always been there, at least in the modern era, and that has not been acknowledged by the, the party, and I think often overlooked by historians and journalists. And, you know, I, I, I went back and looked at the last 70 years, and I saw that the GOP again and again had both encouraged and exploited extremism. And the book is a history of this relationship between the party, the Republican Party, and far-right fanaticism. And it's nothing new. I guess the larger point is that it didn't start with Trump. Right. It's always been a crucial piece of the Republican DNA, going back to McCarthyism, as you noted in the introduction. And it has never not been there. Every major Republican presidential nominee 
every Republican president has in some way or another uh, exploited, encouraged, coaxed, romanced the, the, the far right and extremism, which I would define as uh, bigotry, racism, um, fringe politics, paranoia, and conspiracy theory. And if you look at the fact that I believe the Democrats have won a the Democrats in presidential elections have won a majority of white voters once, uh, which was the uh, 64 election where Johnson had the advantage of, of you know, crusading for an assassinated uh, president, um, that white voters have favored Republicans for what is now more than 50 years. And I'm just making the point that I think this attachment to the fringe, this attachment to uh, conspiracy theories, white supremacy and so on, has been a crucial deciding factor for them. Well, in the book, I have sort of the historical context that goes all the way back to the Salem witch trials. Mm-hmm. But I but I pick up the, the, the main bulk of the story um, after World War II in, in what we now call the McCarthy era. Uh, during World War II, the Republican Party had ended up being decimated. Uh, it was down to uh, 10, 12 or so senators in the, in the Senate and a very small number of representatives in the House of representatives and the party looked in some ways almost on the ropes decimated annihilated i mean they had been it had been wrong about laissez-faire capitalism and we saw that with the crash of the market in 1929 and it had been wrong as an isolationist Mm -hmm. force the isolationism was a bipartisan thing but it was mainly run or are associated with Republicans in the late 30s. And so come the mid 40s, the, the party was devastated because it had you know placed its bet on laissez-faire capitalism, unregulated capitalism, and on isolationism, and both had proven to be uh, bad for America. <laughs> yeah. Right? So, so uh, and Roosevelt was tremendously popular. He won the war. He created social security he protected and preserved and uplifted the middle class and also he made beer legal again so there were a lot of a lot of reasons to like <laughs> a lot of reasons to like roosevelt um but in the late 40s mid to late 40s republicans started picking up on this post world war ii very nascent Cold War fear, tension, and unease, particularly somewhat I, I think would you could say was prompted by this new phenomena, nuclear terror. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they did so by red baiting and talking about the communist threat not being as much an external threat, you know, from Russia right. or elsewhere, but being an internal threat threat a subversive threat that you know the commies were taking over the pta the government corporations schools churches unions and you had to worry about a commie under every bed and they started you know as and actually richard nixon started doing that with the alger his case became very famous and that was the thing that put him on the map Put him on the map, got him elected to the Senate. But in 1950, 
he was leapfrogged by Joe McCarthy, right. who claimed to have a list of 207, whatever it was, commies who were still in the State Department uh, knowingly at the uh, at, with sort of the tacit approval of the Truman administration. Now, of course, he was lying and this wasn't true, but it registered and resonated. And the Republican Party embraced McCarthyism. They embraced it because they saw it winning elections. And in 1952, he was lionized at the Republican convention. Now, this is after he had gone to the Senate floor and he had said, this is in 1951, that there was an immense conspiracy at work with people in the government and other elites who wanted to weaken the United States and hand it over to the Soviet Union. Not, mind you, that their policies were wrong, not that they were just not tough enough on the Soviet Union and the military threat it might have posed, but that they were actively working to undermine the U.S. of A., so it could be handed over to Moscow. And the leader of this conspiracy, according to Joe McCarthy, was George C. Marshall, mm. who then was the uh, defense secretary. He had previously been the secretary of state, and he was one of the leading commanders in World War II, right. helping right. to win the war for the United States. And then he saved Europe afterwards with the Marshall Plan. But yet here was Joe McCarthy with this irrational, crazy, evidence-free conspiracy theory that fingered George C. Marshall and all the other Democrats and elites around the country as being the enemy and being evildoers. It was QAnon without baby-eating and satanic rituals. Right. And McCarthy found an audience of millions of American voters and the Republican Party rallied to him. And in 1952, I tell this story in the book, when when Eisenhower was first campaigning for president, he was the guy who had obviously been, you know, one of the leading generals in World War II, had worked with George C. Marshall. That's what I'm thinking. Friend, How could he not stand his... for Marshall, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, he hated Joe McCarthy. He knew he was... a a rogue, a liar, a scoundrel, and was misleading the American public. And he was campaigning in 1952, campaigning in Wisconsin, a key state, which happened to be Joe McCarthy's state. And Joe McCarthy happened to be running for re-election that year. And the two of them were campaigning together. They were whistle-stopping on a train throughout Wisconsin. Um, and Eisenhower, who despised McCarthy, had asked a junior speechwriter to draft a uh, paragraph to put into the big speech he would do at the end of the day's campaigning at a gigantic rally at Marquette University in Milwaukee, which was the alma mater of Joe McCarthy. And McCarthy would be there on the stage. Well, Eisenhower asked this speechwriter to put in a paragraph in which he would basically denounce McCarthyism, not by name, not citing McCarthy by name, but defending George C. Marshall and denouncing unfair and vicious attacks. Everybody would know that this was Eisenhower disavowing McCarthy in front of him, in front of his hometown audience. It would have been, as Joe Biden might say, a BFD, 
a big effing <laughs> yes, deal. Yes, yes, right? yes. And when the poobahs of the Republican Party who were traveling with Eisenhower and McCarthy on this campaign train got wind of this, this is the, the governor of Wisconsin, the head of the Republican Party, and Sherman Adams, the governor of New Hampshire, who was Eisenhower's chief of staff, they had conniptions. <laughs> they said, you can't do this. And, and Adams went to Eisenhower and said, this will kill us in Wisconsin. At that point, they thought they might need the state to win. And also, McCarthy had attracted into the Republican Party millions of Catholic voters who previously had mm -hmm. been allied with the Democratic Party. Um, the Republican Party for years were, you know, was viciously bigoted and prejudiced and biased against Catholics and against immigrants. Right. So the immigrants and Catholics had basically flooded into the Democratic Party and the party of FDR. Right. And well, uh, the, the Al Smith uh, campaign of 28 is is where we hear about this in our history books. Right. But it, ex exactly. But even for years prior to that, when the, these waves of Irish and Italian immigrants came into the cities, it was the more Protestant waspy Republican Party that didn't want anything to do with them and and promoted anti-Catholicism, but also as did the Ku Klux Klan, which was allied in some places with the Democratic Party. So it wasn't strictly, mm -hmm. you know, partisan, but the Democrats in the big cities had built these um, machines, these political machines, often with immigrant votes, often with Catholics. But fast forward to the 1950s and McCarthy, uh, a lot of Catholics, McCarthy was a Catholic, uh, identified with him, didn't like communism because some of them had come from East European nations. Uh, and he was bringing them into the Republican Party. So all these top Republicans did not want to see Eisenhower uh, criticize, slam McCarthy and create all sorts of problems. Well, Eisenhower said, if that's the case, we'll take it out. We'll take that paragraph out of the speech. And he did. And he gave a speech that night that in a lot of ways sounded like light McCarthyism. In fact, the Milwaukee Journal criticized um, Eisenhower for echoing McCarthy in his big speech. So he did exactly the opposite. That's right. As and you point out with quotes, he didn't support McCarthy by name in, in this thing, just as he wouldn't have denounced him by name. But when you read what he said about internal threats and that sort of thing it certainly sounds like an endorsement and dangerous for the country and he doesn't embrace them but he accepts them and he doesn't denounce them and that's kind of the start in the modern era of the republicans party's dance relationship romancing of whatever you want to call it of far-right extremism and then it happened in 64 in the early 60s when uh, Barry Goldwater, then the far-right presidential nomination. David, let's take a step back and then and then then return to some of those later iterations here. But why why did you decide to write this book at this time? What was what was the itch that 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 you scratched? Well, you know, I was thinking about Trump and Trumpism, and I, like others, have been saying for years now that. The problem isn't just Trump, it's Trumpism, and it's the fact that there are, you know, millions of Americans who are susceptible to his lies, including the big lie about 2020, and who are easily triggered 
um, by you know his appeal to their grievances, resentments, fears, paranoia. Some of them believe the QAnon conspiracy theory. They a lot of them believe the big lie conspiracy theory, and you know. And I was just thinking about the relationship between the Republican Party and this element of American society, which I think partly is detached from reality, which has been why the name of the book is American Psychosis. And so I was interested in the background and, you know, the backstory to this relationship between the Republican Party and far-right fanaticism. And I said, oh, someone must have written a book on this. Let me go look it up. Oh, right. And And I went looking and I found no one had. There were good histories of the Republican Party. Heather Cox Richardson wrote a good uh, history of the Republican Party. And Rick Perlstein has written wonderful political histories um, from the 50s, late 50s through 1980 um, that basically cover everything on the gigantic books. But no one had ever looked at the Republican Party with this particular lens through this filter of its partnership with extremism. And so, you know, the the expression, be the change you want to see, well, I decided to write the book I wanted to read. <laughs> no I like that. it, yeah. And so, and, and but I have to say, you know, um, it ended up being far more timely and relevant than I thought it, than I expected it to be when I started, you know, a year and a half ago on, on, on the project. Uh, you know, with Biden calling MAGA extremism semi-fascism with um, Trump embracing QAnon and, you know, driving the Republican Party even further and further into extremism. Um, the book landed at a time when it seems this, this subject is really on the political radar screen. Very good. And you, you say... Um researching and writing American psychosis has bolstered my belief in the importance of understanding history. And, and another quote, once you recognize and acknowledge it, the task of countering such reckless and irresponsible political warfare becomes a tad easier. How so? How does understanding the history, and, and let me add, David, that I have noticed myself turning more and more to history in in my conversations. Mike Kazin, Gary Gerstel, um, the the Talbots on the 60s, uh, 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 James Gaines on the 50s. It's it's it to me, it's not something I think I was doing a year or two ago. And yet now it seems like every second or third one is history. Your contention that it's important and that it makes it easier to counter it. How does understanding the history help? Well, I think a lot of people look at the last few years and they see them as exceptional. And in a way, they are, as probably every era feels exceptional (laughs) at the time. Um, But, you know, Donald Trump is indeed an exceptional uh, political force. But if you got rid of Donald Trump, if you flipped the switch and he was out of the picture... I don't think that solves the problem. You know, I think the problem is what we you know would call now Trumpism, more that more so than Donald Trump himself. And 
I think understanding how we got to this place where Trumpism has such a hold on tens of millions of Americans and has such an impact on the political discourse, the political landscape, is really important to understand if you try to think about where we go from this point. Um, so when I mentioned earlier that the that the that the relationship between the Republican Party and extremism has always been a part of the GOP DNA, even if not fully recognized, now we see it in full bloom, so to speak. And so if you're thinking about how we get past this, uh, you have to understand that the roots are really deep and just defeating Trump or even isolating Trump will probably not do the trick. You can't go back. Your aim can't be to go back to the political party of Bob Dole, say. Uh, that that's, you know, thinking that that would make things, you know, better or thinking that that would solve the problem is a misreading of history. If you understand that the party has been infected by far-right fanaticism going back decades, yeah. you realize that just getting rid of one politician is not going to do the trick. And so then it causes you to think about a response to Trumpism that isn't just focused on Donald Trump himself and defeating him, but it's focused on, okay, what do we do about this strain, what Richard Hofstetter in the 60s called yep. a paranoid style of politics within our political body? And so I mean, yeah, I'm not sure it makes easier uh -huh. to figure out what to, to, to counter but it certainly makes it easier to not make a mistake to not have a misconception guide your thinking as you try to come up with a response yeah so and as you as you point out by the way david you, you pelosi biden others all sort of like to say that this is a break that that trump is an exception that there that we got to return to normalcy um, and, and so in some sense, your book is a corrective to, you know, that's nice rhetoric, but is it really true and will it really solve the problem? And what the book does is track the, the development of the relationship between the Republican Party and extremism. And if you, you know, go back a couple of decades, not going back all the way to McCarthyism, but if you go back to, you know, just say, Newt Gingrich yep. in, in the 80s and 90s and who came up kind of in conjunction with Rush Limbaugh and he was saying we need to, the Republicans, we need to fight as if this is a civil war and he picked up on what the new right, religious right had done in the 70s which was to start demonizing Democrats, liberals, um, progressives and particularly gay people as not just being wrong, but as enemies who wanted to destroy the United States and destroy Christianity. And so you had to you had to dehumanize and you had to demonize the other side. And Ginridge did that, Rush Limbaugh did that, and you saw that with the Clinton years, the rise of conspiracy theories in which the Clintons were said to be responsible for dozens of murders. Right. And you had people like Jerry Falwell, who was a leader of the religious right, very important in the Republican Party, selling videos that basically pushed this nutty conspiracy theory. Um, you had the Republicans 
playing footsie with the rise of the militia movement mm -hmm. in the mid 90s and yet people at the nra using their bulletin board to trade recipes for bombs and talking about how they'd arm uh, in preparation to fight back against the government and passing along crazy conspiracy theories about black helicopters coming in from the un to take away their sovereignty and the republicans kept feeding this they fed it with the christian um, coalition that uh pat robertson created um in the early 90s as well and then you know you can fast forward a bit to the tea party in which they well let's first before we get to the tea party let's talk about sarah palin yep in 2008 as the running mate to john mccain she's out there saying that barack obama is a pal of terrorists and at her rallies people are shouting out kill him kill him he's a communist and she's is saying publicly that if he's elected he will impose a socialist tyranny on the united states and then the tea party a year or two later after he is elected the essence of their complaint was that barack obama was a secret socialist muslim born in kenya who had a secret plan to destroy the american economy so he could impose a totalitarian state and be emperor i mean this is literally what people said and so with each iteration you see the republican base being further and further radicalized in far-right fanaticism extremism paranoia and conspiracism and so you get to 2015 and Donald Trump is running for president, and you have 15 other guys running in the Republican um, primaries, and they're arguing about marginal tax rates and <laughs> who has the better education policy and, you know, uh, who will be tougher in foreign policy. And Trump essentially comes along and says, are you guys effing crazy? You know, the Democrats are evil. They want to destroy America. They want to you know, he basically looked and saw that the Republican Party had been throwing out red meat to a radicalized base for a couple of decades now, and that the base wanted redder and redder red meat. And it didn't come from having policy debates about housing policy. It was about bashing immigrants and Muslims and Mexicans and claiming that the Democrats were crazy, radical, and wanted to annihilate America. Um, and it was a bit of a bet on his part um, to see whether this would work, but it, it worked rather well. And he ended up having a hostile takeover of the Republican Party uh, by doing this. But, but by recognizing this history and connecting the dots, you see that the roots are really, really deep for Trumpism, for this politics of paranoia, fear, demonization. And thus, if you want to think about countering it, you got to figure out how to deal with the phenomenon, not the man who capitalized on it. Very good. And and one thing I would say is that a lot of times what you find people doing is saying it's it, it's not just Trump, it's it's a the fear of a white working class that's been um, hurt by uh, by Clinton's uh, globalization policies and ignored and so on. You're saying, wait a minute that's sort of too 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 uh too nice a picture to put on it it's darker than that let me tell people this is free forum a world that just might work i'm terence mcnally i'm speaking with david corn about his new book american psychosis a historical investigation of how the republican party went crazy 
um, and about minority rule, the media, the midterms, and so on, which I believe are all either infected or affected by that psychosis. And you can learn more at David Korn, one word, davidcorn.com. And uh, David has a fairly new uh, newsletter called Our Land, which uh, is uh, you can find at davidcorn.com or at motherjones.com. And also at Mother Jones, you can find uh, you, you go in the, within their uh, website for David Korn and you'll see his articles over the last few years. Um, let me uh, let me say that. So as as we've kind of gotten to, um, it's not Trump. It's deeper. It's longer. It's rooted. And I think one thing that's fascinating is this demonization of the Democratic Party. So it's not just that there are fringe elements, but they're actually out to destroy America. And, and, and what's interesting to me, I guess, is that with McCarthyism, it was communism. Uh, but that same sort of accusation, um, it, it changes form. It changes exactly what the details are, but then it becomes uh, we're a Christian nation and they're out to destroy that. We're a family nation and they're out to destroy that. It, it really is a key piece of it that you have to vote for us. You have to be with us if you want to save the American way of life. You know, that's the, the theme that comes over again and again and again is the creation of the subversive enemy, the enemy within, the eternal enemy. With Obama, we saw it, you know, we called it the othering of Obama. He wasn't really born here. He was Kenyan. He was foreign. You know, he happened to be black as well, but for some, and, but that he was not here to help America. He didn't believe in America. He didn't understand America. And as they pushed it further and further, he was here to destroy America. I mean, I get you know, emails from all these Republican candidates and Trump himself, you know, a bunch a day, one, two, three dozen, whatever it might be. And they all are, they all are pushing the theme that Democrats are part of the radical left, which includes communists, um, anarchists, and Antifa, and they're here to destroy America. Now, in the 70s, the religious right came to being, Jerry Fell and others, by attacking homosexuals, gays and lesbians, and saying that they wanted to destroy the American way of life. And Jerry Fowell at the time even said that, that the gay people would kill you just as soon as look at you. And there were members of, you know, of his leaders of the moral majority that Ronald Reagan embraced who called for death sentences for for homosexuals. It was, I mean, quite literally that, that God's law allowed you to put to death someone who was gay or lesbian. And Ronald Reagan it fully endorsed this organization. And so we see in each of these different eras, eras the, the same essential mm -hmm. attack line that the Democrats are evil and they the progressives, liberals, and they and they want to annihilate the United States, and and that's what we see with QAnon. Right, right. I was right? going to say exactly. QAnon yeah. is it seems to take it just one wild step further, but it's the same claim. It's all the same idea that there are elites 
and forces that are trying to destroy your country. In fact, during the 2020 campaign, um, Trump, you know, you know, we forget sometimes just how far extreme he can go, be because there's a fire hose of lies right, and, right. And, and crazy remarks. But he was literally saying throughout the 2020 campaign that Joe Biden was in league with Antifa mm-hmm. and radicals who were going to come in and destroy the suburbs, meaning right white suburbs, right? right? And like Joe Biden wants to destroy <laughs> the suburbs. I mean, that makes no sense whatsoever. Why would Joe Biden want to destroy your white suburbs? That's kind of where he comes from. Um, but nevertheless, it's this idea that there's this malevolent force that you know that is working against America from the inside. And that it happens to be Democrats and then elites and people in Hollywood and academia. I mean, the the different iterations have different casts of characters, but, um, you know, and and there are different degrees of craziness. QAnon adds baby eating and pedophilia and sex trafficking to the the, the basic charge here. But it's always been the same thing. It's this, and the Republican Party has always used, even. You know, even so like Mitt Romney, who, you know, people look at as a maybe more moderate, more decent or, or more independent Republican. And I know people who have who have worked with Mitt and know him personally. And they and they attest to his his, 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 his sort of his decency as a, as a decent neighbor and boss and all that. And I, you know, you know, I accept that. OK, but uh, however, ran, <laughs> but when he ran for president in 2011, which was the height uh, in 2012, the height of the Tea Party craziness, um, he still participated in the othering of Obama, saying that Obama, you know, he didn't call Obama, you know, a, a, a secret Kenyan or a secret socialist, but he kept saying others were doing that. And as they did that, he was saying, Obama doesn't understand America. He doesn't get Mm. America. He doesn't understand what's right for America. He doesn't get the American story. This is a biracial guy who's grown up to become a presidential nominee, doesn't (laughs) understand the essence of the American dream. Of course he does. But he and then he even embraces um, while he's running for president, Donald Trump and accepts his endorsement when Donald Trump is the leading proponent of the racist birther conspiracy theory which is again part of the you know can fall under this overarching category that the other side is you know there's something secretive and evil and demonic about it and that here's obama he was really born an american isn't entitled to be a president right born in africa and isn't entitled to be a president um so even mitt romney decent old mitt who voted, you know, to you know, to to convict Donald Trump of impeachment when he was running, felt he had a kowtow to the far right extremism that infects his party, the Republican Party. And I, I want to read a quote that you quote, um, just because, just so people get the sense again of how long this has gone gone on, and how. The same sorts of factors seem to resonate. And this is, you say, in 1970, sociology, now 1970, right? This is, we're just, we're, 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 we're coming out of the 60s. We're still in, in 70, I consider part of the long 60s. Sociologist Seymour Martin Lipset and Earl Robb wrote, quote, 
right-wing extremist movements in America have all risen against the background of economic and social changes which have resulted in displacement of the uh, uh, certain certain members of the white middle class. I mean, that is so much, you could write that quote today and it would be true. So it just shows kind of the perspective has, has gone back over 50 years. Yeah, they wrote that in, in 1970 and they were looking at probably the past 20, 25 years. It's now 52 years later from when they wrote that uh, comment. And it still holds true. Now, people argue about the Trump election and 2016 about whether he was, you know, playing to people's economic fears or whether there was more of a cultural uh, resentment based on racism and fear of changing demographics. There was a good book put out a couple of years ago called The Identity Crisis by Three Political Scientists who um, basically fall into the latter camp that, you know, what was driving Trump's base w was were questions of identity and culture, meaning race and immigration. Um, and that when people said they wanted to make America great again, they were thinking less about industrial policy and more about the, um, you know, the browning of America and the rise and expansion of rights for people who are not white. Um, so I think that's, you know, I, I, I think, you know, the the components of what drives people may shift to the balance, the equation, the formula, the recipe. Uh, but it all it's, I think it certainly boils down to people feeling threatened um, in a way, either culturally or economically, um, and that makes them susceptible to this politics of grievance, resentment, tribalism and paranoia. Right. And I recently um, talked with Mike Kazin, as I said, about his history of the Democratic Party, what it took to win it. Gary Gerstle about his book, The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order. Um, and both point out, and I'm just taking it back to that earlier era, that FDR and Truman didn't call out Southern segregationists because they needed them to pass progressive legislation. But finally, Kennedy and Johnson couldn't continue that forever. And they, uh, Johnson certainly famously knew that when he took a stand, um, basically, uh, he was kissing goodbye to the Southern segregationist Democrats and, and uh, 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 calling forth, if you will, uh, Nixon's Southern strategy. Um, and, and, and so it's just interesting to look at how long this has been the role. But the point I was pointing out with the Lipset and Rab quote is that the displacement, the social changes, the the feeling that you're, it, it's your way and your power is waning among working class and middle class Americans has been uh, sort of the, the, the open window in which the extremism rushes in. I wanted uh, to, you, you wrote a, a, a column recently uh, that I thought was quite interesting about Donald Trump and his two forms of fa fascism. And I would say these are not just Donald Trump's because of course um, we find the same sorts of, and you, you point out snowflake fascism 
and gaslight fascism, but it's not just Trump, although he may be the one that gets the most attention, but Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lori Boebert, all of those folks seem to do both of these. Could you briefly tell people what you see there? Well, you know, these phrases were a little bit tongue-in-cheek, which I, I'm loath to say, you know, so when we're discussing something as significant and important as fascism or semi-fascism. But um, when I talk about snowflake fascism, I refer to like when it was prompted by when Joe Biden mentioned that MAGA extremism was moving towards semi-fascism, semi was his term, um, and the entire right went nuts. Uh, how dare you do this? How dare you call us names? This is terrible for America. Da, da, da. I mean, you can go back and you can find example after example of Trump and people on the right calling liberals fascists. I mean, it's a, so it was kind of like silly of them to sort of say this is out of bounds. But I think more important was here you have a political party that is denying an election, tried to overturn an election, has downplayed or dismissed an insurrectionist attack on the Capitol to try to overturn election results and is led by a man who has vowed, if elected again to the White House, to pardon yes. the hundreds of brown shirts who attacked law enforcement officers at the Capitol on January 6th. He said he will let them go, which is a way of excusing political violence that was done in his name. And he's also embraced the crazy paranoia of the QAnon yep. conspiracy theory, tweeting out, or he doesn't tweet anymore, but putting on other uh, social media posts uh, approving of QAnon. And so it's like, my God, what do you have to do to be called a fascist? You deny elections, <laughs> you support political violence to get your way, you, you, know, you promote crazy conspiracy theories. Um, it's, you know, so if, you know, it falls you, into you, the dictionary definition, <laughs> right? But that, but no, 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 we can't call them fascists there. And there's like, there are snowflakes about this. And, you know, and, and, and guess like fascism was just sort of a, a an offshoot in which they you know, often deny that there is anything that really went wrong with January 6th or that it's not a big deal that Trump is endorsing a crazy paranoid conspiracy theory. This isn't really happening. Nothing really to um, see here, folks. Just move on. Right. Right. So, no, no. And it's, it's you're, you know, the liberals are just hysterical and making all this up. So those are and, and you know, and, and I, I actually don't like using the F word. And I mean fascism, not the other F word, which I don't mind using at all. Uh, but I, I, I don't. I mean, because it, it does make it. It does make one sound hyperbolic, partisan, and I know that that's a turnoff for a lot of right, people. Right, right. No, I, they, let me see if I'm because I'm with you. Let me see if I get what you're saying, which is that while accurate, it may not be smart. Yeah, and well, I'm not saying whether it's smart or not, but I, I know that it. It resonates and registers often the wrong way. It just, it's it, it, it's a it's a very harsh word to use, but I think some I think it's becoming unavoidable when you have Trump, you know, in full command of one of the two major parties, saying that he would pardon people who committed awful acts of violence 
to protect and advance his political interests. I mean, that is part of fascism. And, you know, and so I, 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 so I'm not quick. I haven't been quick to use it. But when I see Tucker Carlson, you know, on Fox, uh, emulating Viktor Orban of Hungary, talking yep. about the great replacement theory, playing on people's race, racial fears, saying, you know, putting people on the air who say that the the government is out to get you. They're coming to round up uh, conservatives and basically put them in prison camps. All this crazy stuff. I mean, that's the hallmark of fascism as well. So um, it's it, it's it's a hard position to be in when you're up against people who are extremists to call them out accurately when they then start saying, well, look at you, you're using all this extreme you know, language uh, against us. Well, and the media often looks at it and says, oh, well, both sides are the same. Both sides. Yeah. Right. 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 So it's a it's a it's it's a little bit of a dilemma. But I do think that eventually the people, the non-Trump portion of this country, and this is, you know, you know, we talked about how history can help us. And I mean, having written this book, American Psychosis, it leads me to believe that you can't make, you can't wish away uh, this, you know, extremism that has had deep roots in American society and deep roots in the Republican Party. You can't do it by winning an election. You can't do it by preventing someone from running or defeating a particular candidate. Uh, it's there. So then I start thinking about, okay, what do you do? I think you have to come up with a strategy of containment. Mm. You have to keep this this group of people uh, as small as possible. It's you know kind of like the Cold War with Russia. You know, contain, and you can try to nibble on the edges and convince people who are part of that world now that it's not the right place to be and that they're wrong and they, they'd be better served if they if their politics were aligned elsewhere. But most importantly, the people who see the threat and see the danger have to convince the rest of the people who are not part of the Trumpism world mm -hmm. to be actively opposed to it. Now, you can call these people moderates or independents or people who don't pay attention to politics or people, you know, who just swing voters. Yeah. Whatever, whatever, whatever you, whatever whatever you your call terminology. them. But, you know, if I, you know, I calculate that anywhere from 20 to 30 percent of America is enthralled with Donald Trump. Well, let me Trump just read it. one thing. Uh, according to a survey conducted by Robert Pape, University of Chicago political scientist, up to 25 million Americans believe the use of force would be justified to restore Trump to power. That's 25 yeah. million. And then yeah, you 25 add... adults. Yeah, so, you know, so yeah. that's that's not that's less than 10 percent. It still is problematic. But if you sort of, you know, you know if that's the diehard and you can that's right from that, you have tens of millions of Americans out there. And the, the point is to really mobilize the rest of the country to see the threat they pose and to figure out how the rest of us can organize ourselves to limit the damage they can do right with, with the but the republican party as of right now it seems to me is still favored I, I see occasional polls that question this but still favored to win control the house next month now i'm going to ask what is in some sense a rhetorical question does that mean that half of the country actually believes the big lie and the rest of the misinformation and anti-democratic plans of the party 
And I think not. And basically, that's what you were just saying. You know, it's not half. It's it's somewhere between a quarter and a third. But what explains the fact that they may actually win uh, the House and, 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 and it's even a toss up in the Senate? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 confounding to me in a way that a party that pays fealty to Donald Trump, uh, who tried to destroy the constitutional order of the United States, is poised to win one, if not both houses of Congress. Just for being loyal to him alone, you should not want these people anywhere close to power. But you know, our politics have become very tribalized and people who vote, which is not everyone, but people who vote, many tend to feel they're in one camp or the other. And if you're a Republican, you're a Republican, you vote Republican. And the number of voters in the middle or people who are used to be called persuadables who could end up voting either for a Democrat or Republican is a much thinner slice of the pie these days. Um, so I think that going back to the point I was, I was trying to make a few moments ago, it's incumbent on progressives and Democrats and people who see the threat posed by Trumpism to try to figure out how to you know, bolster their numbers as much as possible and reach those people in the middle and to make sure people understand what is at stake and what is at risk so that you understand that if you're voting for a Republican, you are voting to put in power a party that will serve Donald Trump, his interests, his, his, his desire for revenge, and his possible future scheming to take power uh, by subverting the Democratic foundation of the country. Um, you know, that's a hard, you know, while people are worried about yes. fuel prices and, yep. and food prices, you know, that could come across as more abstract and a lot of Americans are turned off to politics. I get it. Um, but that is the challenge. At do you, do you agree with me that like 20, I mean, maybe like every race really, but certainly like 2018 and 2020, that this is a turnout election and, uh, and, well, and, and that what we know the passion on the right, we know the passion of that segment of the Republican Party. We know the passion of, it appears, a lot of women, as demonstrated in Kansas, about Roe v. Wade. What's your sense at this moment, and we've got about uh, two or three minutes, um, of the, the, the get out the vote, the turnout that we're likely to see? You know, every election is, in essence, a turnout election, right? In 2020, Trump got, what, 8 million more votes or whatever than he got. Yeah, before. and a total of 74 million in case anyone forgets. Right. And so I think maybe 12 million more votes. Um, Joe Biden got more. People were mobilized and there was a much greater turnout than there had been four years earlier. Uh, so it's really about, you know, Elections are determined by the composition of the electorate. And, you know, people who, you know, who support Trump support him often more enthusiastically than people who support um, Hillary Clinton or, or even Joe Biden. But there happen to be more Joe Biden supporters last time around. So, so I, I don't know. I, the, the election is very, you know, odd. The polls are swinging back and forth 
Um, the Dobbs decision certainly changed things, but passions in American politics heat up very quickly, but then sometimes they fade. Mm, um, mm -hmm. Concerns about the economy are always, always, always uh, a major factor in any election. So um, prices still being high, and, and this... Uh, and I assume in the next few weeks, gas prices will go up because of OPEC and the Saudi, yeah. you know, very cynical maneuver here at the last, right before the election. And that might might have an impact. I mean, I, I will say this. I was heartened when when Joe Biden at the end of August, beginning of September, was talking about the threat posed to democracy in America by MAGA Republicans. And I thought that was very heartening to try to get people motivated to vote beyond economic issues here. But he hasn't done much of that since. Mm -hmm. And I fear that, you know, the Democrats have not created uh, that portion of a compelling narrative. Yeah. And the other, I mean, two other things I will say, and, and, and we really do have to close it. You you could just give me a quick, you know, maybe an assent or, or not. But uh, what I'm worried about, as always, is whether the Democrats understand the importance of down ballot races, state legislatures, governorships and so on. And, and second, we're talking about are they making the threat uh, alive enough, uh, you know, visible enough? But also, are they making the economic arguments, you know, for the jobs they've created and the and the, the, the people that have risen out of poverty and, and the things that they've done, you know, before gas prices hit the roof? No, I don't think so. I yeah. mean, I, I don't think they've sold the the Inflation Reduction Act, the American Rescue Act, the infrastructure. Yeah. Bill. I don't think they've done a good enough job. Of, if And to me, it's like... Um, Okay, West Virginia, 25% of people over the age of, I think, 60, 65 don't have teeth. Okay, they wanted to expand Medicare, the Democrats and Biden did, to provide dental coverage to Medicare, which doesn't include medic, uh, dental coverage. And the Republicans said no. They won't go along with that. So, America, do you want your teeth? Yeah. I mean, they're, 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 I think there are simple arguments to be made here that just aren't made enough and often enough. And one of the lessons of Donald Trump, unfortunately, is if you say something over and over and over and over and over again, it's, whether it's true or not, it registers. Now, I think Biden has a case that would be more that would be truthful, and I don't see the Democrats uh, making it as yeah. robustly as they could. That's right. Either one of those two arguments, which it seems to me are the get out the vote arguments are being made well enough. We're going to bring this to a close. Again, the book is American Psychosis. Uh, the website is davidcorn.com or uh, motherjones.com. And you can find many articles and his newsletter at that motherjones.com as well. For this conversation and many other interviews and articles and to join me in pursuit of a world that just might work, go to terrencemcnally.net or a world that just might work.com. They're the same website. And that's Terrence McNally is T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E. M-C-N-A-L-L-Y dot net. And if you want to receive my weekly email announcement telling you who's going to be on, what we're going to talk about, and usually 10 articles to flesh out the conversation, sign up at my site. Uh, links to articles. It's not a mile-long email. Um, sign up at my site or email me at temcnally at mac.com, M-A-C.com. You can also subscribe and listen to the Freeport Podcast on Apple Podcasts and at most major podcast sites. 
and you'll find years of podcasts at those sites or at my site. Um, Naomi Klein, Michael Lewis, Bill McKibben, Van Jones, Connie Rice, Greg Boyle, George Packer. You can also follow me on Twitter at McNally Terrence. Thanks to Keanu Williams in production, George Vassilopoulos at Progressive Voices, and most of all to you, my listeners. Please share this podcast widely. And finally, thank you, David Korn, and keep up your good work. Thank you, Terrence.